You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hi, I'm Ralph Powell, co founder and CEO of Real Vision. Thank you so much for listening to the Real Vision podcast. At Real Vision, we pride ourselves on providing the best in-depth expert analysis available to help you understand the complex world of finance, business, and the global economy. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll accept my invitation to try Real Vision Plus for 30 days for just $1. Visit realvisionpodcast.com today and join us as we navigate the financial world together. Cheers. For many markets, Donald Trump has been an X-factor, the source of bullish sentiments and pro-growth policies, and the cause of macroeconomic concerns and occasionally pure bewilderment. But to this week's guest, Donald Trump has been something else, a friend. Ken Kirsten has led a fascinating life as a reporter, publisher, cryptocurrency evangelist, punk rocker, and political operative. We're about to find out what makes him tick and what draws him to our current president. This week on Adventures in Finance, The Insider. Today is the 15th of February 2018 and welcome to episode 54 of Adventures in Finance. Uh, in a very cold and windy New York City, uh, Alex, come in, Alex, over. Yes, I, I got to see you in this in this weather. You, you weren't faring particularly well, I must say. It is, it's cold. <laughs> There's no other way to put it. It's cold, and uh, I've decided that all things being equal, I'd rather not be in here or Philadelphia. I'd rather be somewhere warm, frankly. Well, Grant, we um, traded places, didn't we? Because last week I was in New York. Now, hang on a second, but we haven't even introduced you, so the people listening at home won't have a clue who that is. Who's, who is that just random voice? I'm, I'm just uh, slowly slipping into the shadows. There you go, there you go. Down uh, in the Cayman Islands, ladies and gentlemen, drumroll please, producer James. Also known as the Puppet Master. The Puppet Master, okay. Okie dokie. I'm not quite sure where to go with that. There are, there are all sorts of places. Never mind we... the sound man behind the curtain. Yes, exactly. <laughs> anyway, we have a lot to get to this week, gentlemen. Um... Alex, why don't you uh, tell the dear listeners uh, what the centerpiece of this week's episode is? Sure. So we have uh, an interesting conversation with a, a man named Ken Carson, who most people probably haven't heard of, but maybe should have. He's a political operative. He's former editor-in-chief of the New York Observer. He's an early crypto investor, and he's on the board of uh, the cryptocurrency Ripple. And he's a friend and speechwriter for the current president of the United States. So um, really interesting. Oh, and, and also he's in a, he's in a rock band, which we'll get into as well. So really interesting interview um, brought to us by our friend and, and co-worker, Ash Bennington, who's on the editorial team here. So we'll get to hear that interview in a little bit. Indeed we do. We also welcome back our Things I Got Wrong segment, this time with Nick Colas of Data Check Research. And Nick walks us through uh, a time when he lacked some conviction at the turning point in the market and the lessons he learned from that. It was a fascinating conversation to hear. Uh, but before we get into that, it's time for our long short, Alex. And as always, I'm going to do the right thing and let you go first. I'll give you the chance to maybe steal mine this week. Let's see what you go with. Uh, this week, 
I am short being there. The there was a story no. in the New York Times. <laughs> you can't be short Chauncey Gardner. Uh, I love Chauncey Gardner, uh, uh-huh. I, but I'm, I'm short being there in, in real life. Uh, there's a story in the New York Times called Where Are the People at the Olympics, uh, pointing out what I noticed myself, which is I've been watching these Olympic events, and the stands are almost completely empty. Um, I actually was watching the, the downhill skiing, and they have a quote from the man who won downhill skiing, Axel Spindel of Norway, who said it was a little bit strange how empty the stands were. Uh, went on to say, if we had this race in Italy, Austria, Norway, Sweden, it would have been packed with 50,000 people, and pronounced the whole affair a bit sad. Um, hard to feel too bad for a guy who just won a gold medal, but uh, I, 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 I did notice this, although I must say, watching it on TV was an amazing experience. Watching just the very end of the run as they boom down the mountain doesn't seem so great. So hard to blame people for not going, but but amusing to see on TV just huge empty chairs and, and like three people clapping when someone uh, does one of the greatest things ever known to man. So, Do you know, I, I, I'm with you on this. I have to say, there's, um, this is something that I've noticed over the years. I, I'm a huge sports fan. Uh, watching golf in person kind of sucks. Uh, watching um, American football in person kind of sucks because it just takes forever. Right. Uh, you know, I love watching baseball on TV, but kind of being there, it's a bit flat, uh, the atmosphere. And, there, you know, there's a Twitter um, feed called Empty Seats Galore, which I've been following for a long time. And it's at Empty Seats Picks. And they, they, they show you um, every game, people post pictures of the seats. And it really mm. does seem to me that sports attendance is declining precipitously. I'm actually about to write the things that make you home about this, funnily enough. Um, so you've picked a, a, very, a, a, a short, very close to my heart. Um, it, it is a shame. And, oh, having said that, I guess the Winter Olympics being so close to Pyongyang, maybe people are sort of huddling in nuclear fallout shelters just in case. That, that may be a reason. You, you know, you're, I think you're fun in there, but uh, the New York Times article did find a way, uh, kind of typically for the New York Times, to somehow blame Donald Trump for the lack of people <laughs> attending the Olympics. <laughs> <laughs> saying that heightened political tensions did not help sales, mentioning Trump's uh, fire and fury speech. So uh, according to the Times, uh, uh, another thing that Trump is to blame for is uh, is those blue bleachers empty at the Olympics. Just gotta- right. Well, I, I, I watched uh, Sean White win the half part the other night. It was just amazing. And, and yeah. I've been watching the curling. The curling is my once every four years guilty pleasure. I don't know why I get so wrapped up in the curling every Winter Olympics. If I turned the TV on and curling was on in any of the four years in between, I would immediately turn it off. But there's something about it at the Olympics that I just cannot help myself. All right, well, I'm going um, to leave my short for later and get into my long first. And my long this week is uh, clear signals of the top of a market. And I'm moving away from the kind of volatility we've seen and some of the pullbacks and and the yield spike and all that stuff. And I am looking at Rolls-Royce, who uh, have this week uh, announced details of their first uh, SUV, 4x4 Rolls-Royce. And we've seen the Lamborghini 4x4. Uh, I'm not sure who would want a Lamborghini 4x4. But now Rolls-Royce is going to release something called the Cullinan it's going to have a V12 engine in it and, and what they call a powerful four-wheel drive. Uh, they reckon it'll do 0 to 60 in under five seconds. I mean, this thing is an absolute tank. Now, if you want signs of a top in the market, it's when this sort of thing gets produced. Uh, and the very fact that Rolls-Royce are moving into the, uh, the luxury SUV market tells me 
that uh, something wicked this way comes. So I am long market tops. I could have been short this. I didn't quite know how to do it, but I've got a much better short. So I'm using this as my long uh, and kind of shoehorning it in there. It, it's kind of nice, though, if, if you know, James Bond uh, got married and had kids and needed to pile a lot of hockey equipment to the back seat, maybe this is what he would drive. Dear boy, that would be an Aston Martin 4x4. Let's not ah, get carried away. Okay. James Bond does not drive a Rolls Royce. He drove a BMW once, as I remember, um, but that got stopped rather quickly <laughs> after the outcry among English James Bond fans. Yeah. But uh, no, James Bond drives an Aston Martin. So let's just get that straight. Any James Bond fans out there offended by Alex, please email him at alex at realvision.com and take it up with him. Uh, thank you. Finally. Yeah, there you go, James. You're off the hook yeah. this week. All right, well, that's your short and my long out the way. Why don't we have your long and then I'll give you my short. Excellent. So uh, I am long locks. Wait, as in smoked salmon? I, I mean, I, that is another perpetual long for me. But uh, no, I, I am long the, the things that you close your... Uh, fasten your door with because uh, Boston Dynamics, uh, the company. Oh my makes, God, I saw this. <laughs> yes. Uh, they, they I know where you're going. They can open doors, and it, I guess it doesn't sound that impressive when I say it, but watch the video because. No, you have to see this. Yeah. I, this is. There's this something is so terrifying. terrifying about it. Yeah. I completely agree. This is, uh, yeah. I, I, I mean, they made a cute little vignette where one robot opens the door for another robot, but like, just it, it's so strong and so scary. And, you know, that guy in, in the, in the small town who says, Oh, we don't lock our doors around here. Like once he sees the video, he's just the knowledge that a robot could open your door if it wanted to. Yeah. Lock sales are going up. Well, and, and, you know, it's the way these things move. It's, they're really, right. they're like robotic spiders. It's, there's something really creepy about it. Um, I saw that. I saw that this morning, and it, and I, literally, it was a, one of the first things I saw when I opened my eyes this morning. And I just sat bolt upright in bed, looking at this thing, going, yeah. "Oh my god, we're all going to die." We're yeah, all yeah. Gonna, this is this is Skynet. This is how they're going to take us down. That's exactly right. Now, Boston Dynamics was purchased by Google a bunch of years ago. Uh, Google's parent Alphabet uh, recently sold it to SoftBank. So there's there's some real money around this. So if you think there's not a robot behind that door, uh, you might be mistaken. Well, you know what? I wonder if you can you get a robot producer. I don't like hmm. where this is going. All right. Well, let's, we'll, let's just keep, keep on top of that story for us, Alex. Keep on top of it. Yeah. Um, now, my short, my short is a little bit more serious this week. I am short once again the mainstream media, and the reason I'm short the mainstream media is uh, something I saw um, a couple of days ago, which really just highlights all the fake news nonsense that we have to deal with. And that was uh, a piece in the Guardian newspaper in the UK um, talking about the volatility in markets last week. And they basically had an interview with Chris Cole of Artemis Capital down in Austin, who's been on, uh, been on this podcast and has appeared on Real Vision uh, two or three times. Um, you know, Chris is just a wonderful guy. He's, he's a thoughtful, smart, charming man and a, a fantastic investor whose mandate happens to be in the volatility space. And the article written by the Guardian newspaper, which Chris felt compelled to write a very thoughtful um, response to, was such a hatchet job. It, it really is shameful. You know, talking about how he was joyful at making money when all these people were suffering. I mean, it was, it was such a dreadful piece of journalism. Um, and so I wanted, to, I wanted to call them out um, point anybody listening to this to the Artemis uh, Twitter feed, which is at Artemis Vol, uh, where you'll find Chris Cole's letter. And I would urge people 
not just to read that letter, but to retweet it um, and get the word out there because this kind of journalism uh, is is just everything that we started Real Vision to try and uh, mitigate, and it, and it just it really gets my back up when I read this kind of stuff. So that is my short this week. Uh, mainstream media in general, but the Guardian article in particular, which I thought was absolutely shameful. Yeah, there is something where. It, it, I, it's, it's a common trend in media stories that if someone's making money while someone else is losing money, for some reason that that is a, a, a horrible thing. Whereas obviously that's the entire way that that markets work, and and just that fundamental misunderstanding is, is incredibly frustrating. Well, you know, look, this, the, the volatility strategy is there as a hedge for people to mitigate risk when markets do get turbulent. That's the whole point of the strategy. Right. You know, not once have uh, the Guardian wanted to call a, a vol trader while they've been losing money or, or working really, really hard to, to lose as little money as possible. Because there's no story in that. But, you know, greedy Wall Street guys getting rich while people are suffering, mm. which is absolutely not what happened. It, it's, it's just irresponsible, it's shameful, and, uh, you know, I hate being the guy to turn this serious, but it really got my back up when I read it. And hopefully people will go to, uh, to Artemis, at Artemis Vol on Twitter, read Chris's uh, letter and retweet that as far and wide as possible to hopefully combat some of this nonsense reporting. Anyway, that's enough. Let's get on. Let's get on with something a little bit more lighthearted than that, shall we? And that's uh, the interview we've got today. Now, uh, Ash Bennington, who's one of our uh, excellent editorial team, uh, sat down with a gentleman called Ken Curson, and they had a wide-ranging conversation, which I figured we could all just eavesdrop on because it is absolutely fascinating. So let's hand it over to Ash. I'm here today uh, at Teneo, interviewing, without a doubt, the most Zelig-esque person that I know. Um, and I'm going to actually let you introduce yourself. Well, some would say Zelig, others might say uh, attention deficit disorder, because yes, I, I have had a number of different careers uh, in my not-so-brief 49 years. Um, but uh, yeah, this is uh, I'm a business consultant now after uh, spending most of my career uh, in either media or politics. And I've discovered um, in coming into business that there's still a lot of politics and media plays a huge role. So it, it all seems to come together. Um, so tell us a little bit about how you got into politics. Um, I got into politics uh, through writing. You know, I, I was uh, uh, I had founded my own magazine and I sold it. Um, to a, a publicly traded company. It was a, a nice exit for me. Um, and, uh, and after that, um, Time Inc. hired me to be an editor-at-large uh, there, working mostly at Money Magazine. So um, in the meantime, I, got, I had written a couple books, and I got a call from Tina Brown's People. This is back when media businesses had enough money that people had people. And uh, I was asked to come meet, uh, meet Tina about a secret project. Um, and so uh, that's a meeting I, I take 100 days out of 100. So I went in to see what it was, and I thought it was going to be David Boyce because I'd written a uh, profile for the New York Times Magazine of, of a sort of super lawyer turned controversial lawyer, David Boyce. And I had heard he was writing a book for Talk Miramax Books. Um, but instead, it turned out that Rudy Giuliani was writing a book uh, and had uh, been introduced to six co-writers, hated them all, and wanted a second team of six more. 
So I was part of that second wave of six people who were introduced to then Mayor Giuliani. And, uh, you know, in one of those life-changing biggest breaks of career-type deals, we just sort of, you know, fell in love right away. Rudy and I see the world very similarly. We like each other. And, you know, all these high-profile, big-shot writers who didn't get the job kind of said, Mr. Mayor, this is how it'll work. Uh, I'll come interview you for an hour a week, then I'll go back to my lair and uh, uh, write some drafts. I'll come back the next week. We'll sit for an hour and go over the drafts. And I was like, oh, man, I want to be with you all the time. I want to go to every fire. I want to sleep outside your door. And, and I did that sometimes. <laughs> so I think that, that kind of that appeals to Rudy, that type of character. And what was that like working with him? It was amazing. It was uh, the experience of a lifetime. I mean, I mean it started in uh, you know, early 2001, and it was a, a wonderful experience getting to see how the city really works. Um, uh, and then, you know, the worst thing that's ever happened, certainly during my lifetime, but one of the worst things that's ever happened in, in our country and in, in our world occurred, and Rudy was at the very center of it when, uh, you know, a couple planes are turned into intercontinental ballistic missiles by uh, Islamic terrorists. Um, you know, watching Rudy in action handling that crisis uh, was the journalism um, experience of a lifetime. So the very first time we sat down, he, he pulled out this uh, sort of yellow legal pad, and he had a bunch of chapter titles that, that winded up being our chapters in the book. Some of them changed because September 11th hadn't happened yet, and, you know, things evolve and you talk. But some of those lessons definitely apply to business, like um, uh, start with a win. That was one of his big lessons. So in, in, as mayor, he, uh, coming in with, a, a, I think there had been over 2,100 murders in 1993. He started on the first day of 1994, and the city was, was billions of dollars uh, uh, over budget. Um, those were the two huge problems. But one of the subtle problems is that it, the place felt unmanageable. It, uh, it felt out of control. And so he, he looked around and saw that one of the reasons it felt that way is because when visitors to the city, the exact people you want, because you want their money and you don't have to give them many services, they're not using the public schools or whatever, they'd be greeted by these guys who would descend on your car as soon as you got out of the Holland Tunnel or the Lincoln Tunnel and start uh, aggressively panhandling in the form of, you know, wiping your windshield clean. And I'm using my fingers to make the universal gesture of smart quotes around wiping because it's really a shakedown. It's not about performing a service. And so this had gone on for years and years, the squeegee men. And everyone just thought, well, there's nothing you can really do. They have a First Amendment right to be out there, which is an absurd argument and Rudy had his police commissioner, uh, again, Bill Braden, sitting right down the hall from us, uh, do a survey and figure out how many there were. And people thought there were thousands of these guys. It turned out there were 600. And then they came up with the idea that, yeah, maybe you do have a First Amendment right to panhandle, but you do not have the First Amendment right to walk around in the streets during traffic. That's trespassing or uh, jaywalking. And we're going to arrest you for it. And within weeks, the squeegee men were just gone. And they weren't locked up. They weren't in prison. They, they, they weren't being tortured. They, were, they, were, they simply got the message that, that there was a new sheriff in town. So starting small with a success is a, is a great lesson. It's a great lesson for business. If you're a new CEO or you've bought a business that's, that's struggling, 
don't try and fix everything on the first week. Take something that is small that people thought couldn't be managed and fix it. So a lot of companies, you know, when they're, when they're brand new, they, they'll like they'll add pizza day or something small like that just to say, hey, we care about you people. We care about the employees here. And I think those are important lessons. Yeah, and also that your sort of unmanageable problem may not be as large as it seems. Right? That's yeah. interesting. So, so shifting now from politics uh, at, the, at the city level, to politics at the national level. Um, perhaps we'll let you just talk a little bit broadly about what you see happening on the landscape, and then you can we can gradually roll into your current role in it. Yeah, so I have no current role in politics at the national level. I, you know, it's it's pretty well known that uh, during my five years at, as editor in chief of the New York Observer, the paper was owned by Jared Kushner, who's now senior advisor to the president, and I know the president well and. Uh, it's been widely reported that, that I had a small role in the campaign, um, but I have no no role, uh, official or official or otherwise. I, I do uh, I do see the president from time to time, and, and I, I talk to I talk to uh, several of his, his his advisors all the time. But you know that's mostly as as uh, friends um, and you know people who I'm obsessed with politics. So of course I give my opinion. Um, but I, I don't. I, I don't. From time to time, someone will see something the president does that they think is uh, great or outrageous. Most mostly outrageous, given that I, you know, I operate in Manhattan media circles, and they'll they'll say, "Oh my God, please tell me you didn't write that speech or you didn't suggest he do this." And the answer is no, I, I didn't. Well, most of us don't periodically uh, see the president from time to time, and so that's an interesting perspective. Um, just a little bit more about the speechwriting aspect. Well, most famously, um, you know, I made the decision uh, in spring of 2016. Um, I don't want to go into exactly who asked, um, but I, I was asked uh, to help the president um, craft a message to deliver to APAC, which is the American-Israel um, uh, everyone thinks it's a PAC. It's actually not. It's it's just a, a strange coincidence that they have PAC in their name. It's not a political action committee, but it is the the uh, you know the the Israel interest group uh, in the United States. And the president at that time was uh, starting to really get some momentum in his candidacy for the Republican nomination. But there was a large sense among a lot of people that well, this this campaign will crumble if he ever has to deliver a serious policy speech. He's great at you know being reality TV star guy and insulting Jeb Bush or whoever, but when it comes time to really be sober and serious about a, a something as serious as foreign policy matter, can he handle it? Um, I knew that he could. Uh, you know, like like I said, I I know Donald Trump and I knew he could handle it, and I knew where his heart was at on Israel. And uh, I made the decision to uh, to help with that speech, uh, knowing that uh, it would it would be seriously uh, analyzed and and in some quarters criticized, um, meaning my involvement would be. Um, but to me, the the safety and security of Israel is so important that I was willing to take whatever heat would come my way. So uh, I worked with the president on the speech. Um, and uh, you know, I, I gave him a, a, a what I thought was a, a killer draft, and he he like all you know principles, he had his opinions on it and marked it up, and, and then I practiced it with him uh, a bunch of times, and 
uh, and sure enough, he delivered um, a campaign-turning speech. Um, you know, it's uh, that was a that was a key moment for him in, in a campaign with with a hundred key moments. There's you know, there's there's always hundreds and hundreds of people, if not thousands, responsible for for uh, any kind of event that size. But but that was a big moment for him because he really did show, even to his detractors, that that he can. Um, in a serious way, read a speech, and he had uh, engaged in the process of creating the speech, and he clearly believed it, and it was spoken from the heart. So it was a big moment. And then, you know, about a month later, Gabe Sherman, who was then at uh, New York Magazine, called me up. I remember I was I was running around uh, the reservoir near. Uh, um, I live in New York, but I, I also have a house in New Jersey because I've, I've got kids and you know, have them half the time. So I was running in New Jersey, and it was just a perfect day, and I was I was experiencing that. Uh, I, again, I'm going to deploy my unseen scare quotes to indicate that when I say I was running, I, I mean I was, uh, my running speed is indistinguishable from my walking speed. So I was sort of flailing my arms about in a male adroit way, but I was enjoying the, the beautiful, um, the beautiful view out there in suburban New Jersey. And my phone rings, and I didn't recognize the number. Um, and it was Gabe, and he said, uh, Kirsten, I hear that you wrote Trump's APAC speech. Um, did you work on it? I said, yeah, I did. And it was like one of those moments when you know there's going to be, you know, a hassle awaiting you. But, you know, I I had made the decision to do it. I, I decided to own it, and, um, and there was plenty of heat around it. I mean, there was tons of controversy there's uh, a certain number of people at my at the observer want, wanted an explanation but um, you know I sat with them uh, they, they kind of con- confronted me and I, I explained my rationale just like I did to you and nobody quit and uh, they expressed their displeasure but nobody quit and um, you know we, we decided we'd come up with some guideposts for going forward um, but you know it's the kind of thing that uh, that I don't I don't regret having done. You know? Yeah, it's interesting in New York media circles you say that, you know, some people nearly quit. And it goes without saying that that statement doesn't require explanation, right? Right. Yeah, no, it, right. Any sort of help to a candidate would have come under at least some eyebrow raising, but Donald Trump was considered by Manhattan media circles to be outside the realm of acceptable candidacy. And I just don't see it that way. I, I think it was an extraordinary candidate. Um, I, you know, I wanted him to run in 2012. Um, you know, I, it's, it's, it hasn't been... Sometimes people say to me, um, oh, I guess you had to support Donald Trump because you worked for Jared Kushner. And that, that's, that's totally wrong. That's, that's the opposite. I, I had gone to see Trump in 2011 to try to get him to run for the presidency in 2012. I, you know, I, I knew it was going to be Mitt Romney unless somebody awesome ran. Uh, I couldn't stand Mitt Romney, still can't. And I, I, I thought uh, Obama was um, a disaster as a president and that uh, someone needed to, someone stronger than Romney needed, needed to run against him. So, so I had a meeting at, at uh, Trump Tower with, with Donald Trump in 2011. That's, that's two years before I worked at The Observer. So... Uh, so yeah, you, you're right, Ash. There, there was a certain amount of heat directed that just would have been generic at cooperating with any candidate, but there was a special 
uh, temperature rise uh, devoted to this particular candidate. And what made you think in 2011 that this was someone who had what you thought, you know, then and now had the, the medal to, to be present? I mean, it wasn't just anathema among New York media circles uh, until he actually won the nomination in serious Republican policy and political circles. It was thought absurd. So what, what did you see then? that most didn't. Yeah, let's not forget, even in months after he won the nomination, there was all these efforts of how can we get him out? How can we do something at the convention? How can we, even, you know, the Access Hollywood tape came out and people were like, okay, what is the procedure to get him out? And all this, all this nonsense, um, all these efforts, the, 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 what I saw in Trump is exactly what America saw. And I, I, I wish that question would be turned around. I, I want to know what all these people don't see. This guy is a once-in-a-lifetime communicator. He, he gets to people who are not engaged in politics. If you work in politics, as I did for much of my career, making my living, making ads, um, and uh, being a political operative, you know that it's virtually impossible to get a Democrat to vote Republican or a Republican to vote Democrat. It just it almost never happens. The, the game is to try to get people who don't vote to vote and vote for you and to get the very thin sliver of people who don't reliably vote for one party or the other to vote for you. And this is, this is a, a candidate who can communicate with those exact people. So I, I can't understand what people weren't seeing. I mean, he had the number one show on the worst network for a long time. That, that's not some minor asset. And when people would roll their eyes and go... Oh, he, you know, he's getting billions in free media where, you know, Scott Walker can barely get on TV. It's like, yeah, that's that's part of being a candidate, <laughs> having a compelling presence. That that's part of it. That's that's like crying because you know, oh, he has mastery of policy details. It's not fair. I can't remember anything. Or, or oh man, he has such experience that tons of people already love him. Nobody knows who I am. It's not fair. Well, those are candidate attributes, and the ability to communicate effectively and memorably in in these short s- sound bites is is a critical attribute, and he's got it. So, b- based on that, you say a once in a generation candidate. How will you know? What will be the metrics to determine whether or not he's been successful or not successful? In your view. I'm making the worst noise that a sound engineer can endure, James. Like the, the <laughs> crinkling of a water bottle. Is that, like if my kids crinkle an empty water bottle, like they got to go in the dungeon. It's, it's, and they don't do it next to a shotgun mic. Right. It's just like, it probably sounds like a, a violent riot is hitting you. Sorry, I hate that. Um, how will okay? So the question is: I will evaluate Donald Trump's presidency as a success or failure the same way I, I would any presidencies. Is America safer, stronger, richer, happier than it was before he became president? I, I think that's the fairest metric. You know, I mean, trying to figure out these these really complex um, statistical analyses fails. Another great communicator's test, when, when Ronald Reagan ran in 1984, he, he asked, are you better off than you were four years ago? If the answer is yes, vote for me again. And the guy wins 49 states. <laughs> so, you know, I, I, think, I think Donald Trump is, is on a similar arc. Um, I think a lot of people, including a lot of people who don't like him and can't stand the, all the very well-covered personal foibles and the drama, are going to look around their household in 2020 and say, you know what, 
my kid has a lot better chance of being able to afford college or uh, you know getting a job or whatever uh, than he did four years ago. I'm going to pull the lever for this guy, and that's that's how I'll evaluate. And if he fails, he should be voted out. So you mentioned personal foibles. Do you think that some of the personal foibles that have been very well documented, whether it's the, the name-calling, the pugnacity, have the risk of threatening the success of his presidency? I think there's a perceptionary risk, yeah. You know, I, I like the disbandment of the business councils. I think the media is so unfair to Donald Trump that it's crossed the line into being actually bad for America. And and the business councils are, are a good example where where the the pain of media humiliation is so intense that you're you almost can't be uh you know um a, a software company and sit on this guy's business council. That's terrible, in my opinion. It's it's terrible for America because this exact you, you form these councils so that you can hear the concerns of of the constituency, right? And if you are putting such pressure on these these company leaders that they can't even advise the president, then who do you think is left to advise him? You know. So I I do think that some of the some of the uh, Unfortunate moments like like Charlottesville, which was a disaster and, and a, an ugly episode, um, have been costly to to America. Um, but I, I think the the president in his first year as a first time politician has made some missteps. But I, I think that the the media has been so hard on him that it's actually hurting America. Mm-hmm. So switching gears. Um, you mentioned uh, the advisory councils and, and software. You're part of a whole other world aside from politics um, and media, um, specifically the software uh, that drives uh, cryptocurrency. How did you get interested in that? You know, you, you made the remark that I have a Zelig-like career, but to me that all comes together. My, my obsession with politics and with money kind of combined in this really frightening time in 2008 when the entire economy was collapsing. And I was starting to see that the way governments were going to deal with this collapse, some would be responsible. And I, I, I'll give uh, President Bush and President Obama some credit for assessing the seriousness of the situation. But it was really clear to me that the world economies were going to mostly solve this problem by printing money. And that's not, that's a solution that didn't work in 1930s Germany. It's not working in 2018 Venezuela. Um, I I think there have been instances. And I, God, I'm I'm so afraid to sound at all, even for a moment, like Paul Krugman, um, who I hate with the intensity of a thousand suns. But uh, I do agree that there have been instances where uh, money creation is uh, I don't want to say responsible, but a necessary sort of function, uh, a necessary way to to give like a. What do they call those paddles they put on you when you when you need CPR? It's like defibrillator. Yeah, so. defibrillator. Yeah, that's it's sort of financial defibrillator. But in almost all other instances, when when governments print money, it's it's to cover up their own uh, failures to to responsibly deploy it. Um, and I was seeing that so clearly in 2008 that I, I kept thinking, this digital stuff that Chris was talking about it has a future. I don't know what it's going to look like. I'd never heard of Bitcoin. Um, but then in like 2011, um, and I'm not super into like the programming world. I'm not really in touch with all these message board guys, um, um, you know, the ones who look like Plague from uh, the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. 
Um, but I started to hear it percolating around. I was looking into it as a journalist, and um, I bought my first Bitcoin in, uh, I think, 2012 for about 90 bucks. And I remember thinking, this is terrible. Everyone else paid, you know, 50 cents. Why am I paying almost $100? Um, and then uh, that same guy, Chris Larson, got, became the CEO of Ripple, which is uh, a currency that shares some attributes with Bitcoin. Not a lot. I mean, it's a cryptocurrency. But it's it's actually it's validated totally differently, um, and has a, a, a real Bitcoin doesn't care what you use it for, which is one of its its attributes. It's one of the reasons people like it. Whereas uh, Ripple has a very specific usage, which is uh, remittances in uh, in foreign currencies. Um, so I started to get really interested in it. I started to invest. I invested in the company in the you know like the very first day. I, I bought a, a bunch of its token, which is called XRP. I think I paid mostly half a cent um, for the ones I bought. Um, and as you know, I've eventually joined the board of Ripple um, because I've, I've been a consistent investor um, for a long time. So if you think about the Venn diagram between sort of politics, banking, central banking, technology. Software, you're really sort of in the middle of all of that. I, I appreciate you saying that. Um, I'm watching those worlds really closely. You know, the regulatory world is, is part of it too. Yes. And like it, it, it kind of bums me out that um, that there's going to soon be a regulatory patchwork um, that these cryptocurrencies, which have existed in this sort of uh, utopia of of no rules, um, but I also see how important it is to to get some regulations because the whole thing there's, there's just too too much opportunity for pain you know you're I don't know when this is going to air but you're interviewing me in the midst of uh, so far the greatest crash there's ever been in the crypto world and so you know as you tell How your do you friends react to that is we're sitting in the middle of it I react fine you know I mean my for one thing my cost basis is so low that you know it, it my personal Investments, it doesn't, it doesn't really not matter. Just as an investor, but as someone but, who's an enthusiast of the technology. Yeah, I, I think a, it's so important. I mean, I've been very, very troubled to see literally every day new new coins come with some bullshit story about how they're you know going to solve this or that problem, and, and some don't even pretend to solve a problem. They're they're just out and out um, you know gags, and then they're worth a hundred million dollars the next day. That that is not a healthy environment um, for wealth creation. It, it's you know it's sort of it's not quite a Ponzi scheme because it's more of like a public Ponzi scheme. It's it's like advertising something. This is a Ponzi scheme. Get in and get out before the last guy, and that that's just not healthy. You know, people when you say on your Facebook or social media that you're into this digital currencies, there's always some smartass who says, "Oh yeah, it, it'll be great," just like the Dutch tulip crisis. But what they never say when they're talking about Dutch tulips, which has become shorthand for you know. Uh, a crash of some investment or beanie babies that that never should have been worth as much as it got to. They never talk about the guy who sold at the top, right? They're, they're always the the image that's supposed to come to mind is the poor schmuck who took a you know who who took a second mortgage on his house to buy touch, Dutch tulips or beanie babies or Ethereum and is now left holding the bag, but. If he did take that second mortgage to buy it, he bought it from someone. And that there's someone who sold Bitcoins at, at 18000 There's someone who sold XRP at $3.35. There's someone who sold Beanie Babies at you know, God knows how much. So th- until you get through your head that, that every investment that's ever been 
in, including the stocks that I'm watching have incredible volatile days right now. There's for every loser, there's there's a winner, and and that's just how investing works. So I I welcome some sensible calming regulation to this world. Ken, you're also uh, well known in uh, New York media circles, at least, uh, for being a practitioner of the Stoic philosophy. What does that mean? I'm not a a brilliant uh, practitioner or even salesman for it, um, although it, it's meant a lot to me and really helped me in my life. You know, I'm, I'm an observant Jew, and that's where I, I take most of my um, philosophy. But I've been stunned, the more I study Stoicism, how neatly it fits together. And the, 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 key, the key thing about Stoicism is, is when you're not very familiar with it, there's a sort of popular conception that a Stoic you know, can like hit his hand with a hammer and not yell ouch. And that, that's just ridiculous. That, that, that has nothing to do with it. But there is an acceptance that you can control, you should control what you can control and not worry so much about what you can't control. And that's been a huge, had a huge impact on me. Like the story I told you earlier about uh, writing that controversial speech for Donald Trump, I knew it would be, uh, it would create a lot of attention. I knew that some of it would be negative attention, but I was okay with it. I made my mind up and, and I, I sort of got to this place of where I wasn't going to let other people determine whether I was happy or sad for the day. You know, I, 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 uh, I made my decision. I was okay with it and I was at peace with it. And that's really a, a, uh, the contribution that Stoicism has made to my life, this, this sort of understanding that there's so much in my life that I can't control I just got to focus on the stuff I, I can I can have uh, I can have an effect on. So speaking of uh, of focus and being at peace, tell us about your career as a punk rock musician, which <laughs> seems on its face to be on the opposite end of every conceivable continuum from stoicism. Yeah, well, I, you know, music's my my passion in life. I, I've been a musician practically all my life. I've you know I play. Uh, not not super well, but I can play almost any instrument, um, and um, I, I love to sing. And uh, I've written songs uh, from from my earliest days. Like like as, as as soon as I can remember being able to talk, I was making up songs, and um, and that continues to this day with my my kids. So um, it's true that throughout junior high and high school, I played in bands, and then uh, in a miracle. That I would I would consider. Uh, I told you the story of how I got the opportunity to write Rudy's book with him. In in the the only uh, the only other miracle that's occurred to me uh, in, in my life was when the singer and songwriter of my very favorite band called me when I was 17 years old and asked me to try out for his band. And and I, I auditioned and I made it um, and joined. Uh, the the semi legendary Chicago rock band Green for four years uh, instead of going to college and that's uh, that was the greatest experience uh, imaginable. Ken, are you on social media? Is there some place where people can follow you? I'm not on Twitter, but I do encourage anybody to uh, look at a site I just started called ModernConsensus.com, which is all about cryptocurrency and blockchain. Um, consensus is the is the way these these things get minted. So um, so that that explains the name. But please check out modernconsensus.com for daily coverage of cryptocurrency.
Well, we promised you a wide-ranging conversation. I mean, everything from uh, Rudy Giuliani to Trump to cryptocurrencies and punk rock bands there. That's just about got everything in it there. You know, the, it, it's funny. I, I, I never get tired of talking about the Trump phenomenon. Um, but, you know, each time you do, you, you, you have to try, no matter how hard it is, to leave your political bias at the door and just hear people's opinions. Discard what you want, um, but, but, you know, taking umbrage with someone else's opinion because it's not the same as yours is, frankly, what got us into the situation in the first place. So, you know, we really do have to try and um, broaden the political discourse if we're ever going to try and get back to, to some kind of centrist understanding. Um, and I think that was, uh, that was a fascinating discussion there with Ken. Yeah, you know, it, it, it's interesting because I am here in New York and, and not a surprise, I don't have a lot of friends who are pro-Trump. Um, so the, the exposure I get to people who are more supportive of the president comes in the form of pieces where, you, you know, either people on Twitter or people writing things or or, uh, or people appearing in the news who are, are very pro-Trump, maybe because they work for him or because they have some special interest. But but Kirsten is someone who really likes the guy and, and really admires him um, and thinks of him as, as a great communicator and, and, see, and thinks he has all these strengths. So it, it was actually really refreshing to hear a kind of sober take on, you know, why the president's doing a good job and, and could ultimately be reelected. The economy keeps doing well, but also just how, how as Trump, the man is, is <laughs> there's a way to see him other than the, the monster that, that, so many in the New York uh, bubble might uh, might tend to see him as well. You know, the, the the thing to me is, can he get reelected? Yes, of course he can. And so the the, the problem is that those who don't like him uh, get angry at the thought that he can get reelected. the The answer is going to be uh, is, is going to appear in the ballot box, and there's really nothing anyone can do but go out and vote. Um, you know, we've got the midterms coming up, so. There's going to be so much, uh, I think, happening in the political sphere in the U.S. and and by extension around the rest of the world that anybody not voting, you really, if you don't get the outcome you wanted, you've got nowhere else to look but the mirror. I'm afraid. You know, I, I also, you know, with we, we, Ken talking about the cryptocurrencies and for me particularly the punk rock band, having just watched a whole bunch of documentaries about mm-hmm. the punk here in the U.K., which are fantastic. Um, what a uh, what a fascinating man. Yeah, yeah. You, you wouldn't think of stoicism and, and punk rock and and a Trump speechwriter in the same as the same person, but it, you can't. After you hear it from him, you kind of see how it goes together. I mean, he's he's punk enough to want to support someone that other people in the New York media establishment don't like. He's stoic enough to not care about it, and he's uh, politically passionate enough to go for it. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. really interesting yeah, guy. Exactly. So that concludes our feature segment. But now I'm excited to bring in Nick Colas, uh, the co-founder of Data Trek Research, to tell us about something he got wrong. Uh, thanks for joining us, Nick. Absolutely. So, tell us what's uh, what what did you get wrong? Well, the, the the list is very very long, obviously, because anybody who's been doing this uh, for thirty plus years that I have has made more mistakes than they care to remember or or talk about. But in thinking about what a lot of them had in common, uh, I came to the conclusion that. A combination of lack of patience and lack of confidence is the biggest mistake uh, that I've made in terms of investing. Uh, and it comes across in a number of different ways. But basically, you know, and I think this, a lot of people suffer from this problem. You, you do a lot of work. You come up with an idea 
or you have a basic underlying principle uh, and you put it to work and you put capital against it, but you don't always have the patience uh, to see it through to its final conclusion uh, because sometimes, and this is especially the case with me, once you get the initial move, you think, okay, my job here is done and you, and you move on. And the analog to that is, and this is particularly true of investing through cycles, that um, particularly equities feel so bad at a bottom that you just want to get out. And as a result, I was never as fully invested at the bottoms in 2000 or 2009 uh, as I should have been. I was probably less than half invested. And that obviously made things a whole lot more difficult on the way back up. And I'd put that to you know, a lack of confidence more in the system than in myself, but just the same. It it, uh, it had the same net result, which was to make you have to work a whole lot harder from the midpoint of the cycle up because you missed that bottom so badly. Not to accuse you of making another mistake, but do you think there's some hindsight bias in there? Like, do you think that the system actually could have just completely come apart? And now in hindsight, since the system didn't come apart, or or, or do you think that your analysis, even at the time, pointed pretty strongly to to higher equity prices? You know, the smartest thing I've ever heard from a client about the financial crisis, and I'll never forget this, is people didn't bail on equities at the bottom because they were worried about their investment style or worried about their wealth. They were worried about the country. They were worried about America. And I think that's probably true for most uh, Western democracies. The reason you had that cataclysmic low in March 2009 was because people were legitimately, not legitimately, but certainly worried that the ATMs wouldn't work, the political system would begin to collapse, and that you know the country was in deeper trouble. And what they were really getting out of was American society and not wanting to be exposed to America or the American banking system. One day, they didn't want to be exposed to equities. And I always took that to heart. And I think that that's absolutely true, because if you really thought the system was collapsing in March 2009, you needed a plane ticket to Boise, Idaho, not a sale of equities. Um, so, so, so take us back to that time. Like, what were you doing in, in March of 2009 and w- what ended up happening? And if you could go back and see the same information with maybe a more level head and not knowing what the future would bring, not giving you any extra information about the future, what would you have done differently? So I was working at a brokerage firm, which might have exacerbated things because brokerage firms during periods of market volatility are really the nexus of any kind of investor dissatisfaction with the world at large because all you hear from clients is that the world's going to end and you've got to get out and they're making sales and they don't care where the prices get done. They just want to be out of equities. They tried to bottom and feed it and it hasn't worked. And it really is this eye in the storm of, of, of the financial system to see all that happen, particularly in an equity broker as I was working at. And I think it overly affected my own personal investing because obviously you, you want to understand what the, what's going on in the world around you. And if what's going around is bad, you want to do more research on it. And it becomes almost this downward spiral of confidence because you want to understand what your clients are doing, but then it begins to affect your own investment psychology and it's the most painful thing of the world to be a contrarian, but that's really the most uh, efficient way to make money over a cyclist to go against the herd. And it's just as true at the tops and the bottoms. Uh, but at that point, that bottom felt particularly bad. It felt much worse in 2000 um, when I was working on a hedge fund, and that felt bad enough. But, you know, 2008, nine felt much worse. Yeah, I was going to ask, like, having seen a couple cyclists, do you think it's harder to be 
correctly contrarian at the top or at the bottom? Is one of them more more obvious? Maybe you can just look at it more mathematically and say, oh yeah, that this is the trade. Um, I tell you, the, not to say that the 2000 cycle was easy to call, but the market volatility told you something was wrong from the beginning of 2000 onward because you'd walk in uh, to the office and futures would be down 15 or 17 points and you knew it was going to be a tough day. And you knew to begin to give up on the hopes that the dot-com boom would go on forever. Uh, so that felt easier to call and easier to trade. And I think most people who were around back then would probably agree with that. It was a fairly clear, frothy top with mounting volatility, with a lot of opening action that just felt horrible. So that did, that seemed fairly transparent at the time, uh, at least on a trading desk. The bottom in 09 felt more like exhaustion, like there was just nobody left to sell. And it wasn't as clear, although, you know, people like uh, the, the CNBC presenter Mark Haynes actually called Lowe's within an hour because he had seen a few cycles. And to him, it was at least apparent. So perhaps it has to do more with where you're sitting and your own inherent investment psychology about whether or not a top or bottom is easier to call. I'd honestly say tops are easier to call than bottoms. Okay. Uh, fair enough. Uh, so, Nick, where where can people find more of your uh, great uh, thoughts about the market? Uh, we just go to www.datatrekresearch.com, and uh, you'll see a place to sign up for a free two-week trial and a bunch of our writings in the blog section. Uh, we are very active on LinkedIn, so just go ahead and ask to follow me or, or connect with me. I'll be happy to connect. Uh, Nick, uh, thanks so much for joining us to tell us what you got wrong. Hey, thanks for having me on. You know, the timeliness of that conversation, given what's happening in the markets right mm-hmm. now, uh, is is just perfect. I mean, we won't know until this all plays out whether this is a turning point. To me, uh, as I said in our podcast last week, talking to um, talking to Greg, it feels like something has changed. Uh, certainly some of the commentary out of people like Goldman Sachs um, suggests things have changed. A lot of smart hedge fund managers believe that we are seeing a change. Um, if this is a turn in the market, then there are going to be a whole lot of people who will be making decisions right now that those words from Nick are going to come back and hopefully help them and not haunt them. So um, I think it, 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 pays, it pays everybody to pay really close attention to what's going on now and let those words of Nick sink in and, uh, and really digest them because there's a lot of wisdom in there. I'm just curious your take, Grant, by the way, you know, hearing him talk about the importance of being contrarian. What do you think the contrarian, you know, today as, as we sit here, what do you think the contrarian view on the market would be right now? Well, the, the, I mean, it's simple, right? We, we, we've fallen 10%. we bounced off the 200-day moving average. That's cleared out all the froth, and we're back to where we were, and we're going to keep going up. Um, but I just don't think it's that simple, unfortunately. I, I think uh, we saw a real shakeout, um, mm. and it's unnerved a lot of people. And, and markets really are nothing more than, than, than human personalities uh, that, that morph into charts. And so I, I think people's mindset has been shaken. I think this idea that markets go up forever has been proven wrong, and, and I think it's going to change the way people look at markets. And, and really, all it, that's all it takes. If you start to look uh, through clear, cold eyes at valuations in markets, it's hard to make a case that things are anything but overvalued, particularly in, in a world where interest rates are rising and you can now get more money uh, in a two-year treasury than you can in a dividend yield in the S&P. So, so I, think, I think we're around a turning point in markets. Maybe we're not quite there yet, but I think it's something people need to be aware of and pay attention to. 
All right, well, that wraps it up for yet another week. Amazingly, the time just flies by. Next week, we'll be back with another Adventures in Finance, and this time we're going to talk about something we've talked around the last couple of weeks, and that is volatility. In the meantime, between now and then, let the words of the legal disclaimer ring in your ears. Anything you heard on this episode should not be considered as trading advice. These are our opinions and the opinions of our contributors. So please do your fundamental research, chart your technicals, place your stops, and trade responsibly. If you have an interesting question about either this week's show or anything else you've heard on Adventures in Finance, then we'd love to hear from you. So please send us uh, an email or leave us a voice note at podcast at realvision.com. And don't forget to email me to castigate my knowledge of bond parks. Uh, meanwhile, if you've, right. if you've enjoyed what you've heard, uh, please subscribe on iTunes. And if you really enjoyed it, leave a review. Leave a review because if you don't, puppies die. Ooh, dark. <laughs> Actually, come on, James. I'm probably going to stay in, to be honest. <laughs> All right. Keep up to date with the latest interviews, research publications, and podcast episodes. Then please follow us on Twitter at Real Vision. We're also on Facebook and LinkedIn. Just search for Real Vision. You can follow me on Twitter at TTMYGH. You can follow me at Aces Rose. And if you want to, you can follow me at AIF James. And why, who wouldn't want to? Love the confidence. Though. You're AIF enough. James. <laughs> That's it from us, folks. Uh, thanks for listening. We will see you next week. podcast listener and this is a podcast ad reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads go to lipsandads.com now that's l-i-b-s-y-n ads.com